Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We're going to close out the end of this, this uh, chapter of this book. So I'm going to read you the text. We're going to start in verse 38, and then we're going to just work our way through some of the ideas here. Verse 38, I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 47. And Peter said to them, this, the crowd, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is week five now in this kind of walk through the book of Acts. Uh, again, we're going to close. We're going to wrap up chapter two today. So if you haven't uh, been with us, you can go back and find those on our church website, and uh, you can catch up on those if you want to. But today, what we're going to really see is kind of the the very beginnings, the birth of the church, uh, and, and so uh, it's basically we're going to see the birth of kind of the thing that we're experiencing a manifestation of right now in this room, which again is the Church of Jesus. Uh, and so let, let's just kind of recap the story to kind of get us to where I read from. And so last week, if you remember, we saw Peter's first and best sermon, which is, I think, the only person who you could say that about in the history of the church, that his first sermon was his best sermon. And when he closed with the words that we see in verse 36, what you see is the crowd respond immediately, right? The text says they're cut to the heart and they ask Peter, what should we do? And so the Bible says... They, they just, that's their immediate response. And this is amazing for any sermon. It's especially amazing for a first sermon. Uh, but the Holy Spirit's power is manifesting itself already, as Jesus promised it would, in the life of the followers of Jesus and these apostles. And so Peter responds to this crowd by just giving a real simple, clear answer. He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will what? Receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. And then he adds this in verse 39. This promise, what the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Now, he's not making a claim that if your kids grow up with a Christian parents, they're going to immediately be Christians. What he's saying is, when we tie that to when he says all who are far off, he's saying that the promised Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings for everyone who truly believe, extend to everyone. Remember, he's speaking to Jews here, devout Jews. So when he says to you and your children and everyone who's far off, he's thinking of those who are not currently part of Israel, that this is a global thing that God is doing. And so Luke, the author of Acts, then he concludes this section of Acts in verses 40 and 41. And he says, with many other words, he bore witness. So that we didn't even get the whole of Peter's sermon. Peter kept going and he kept bearing witness and continued to exhort them, 
saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 spiritual newborns. That, that's what's happening here in the church. Now, we read that, and we're like, amazing, 3,000 people. But if you've ever had any taste, hint of leading in the church, you read 3,000 new people, and you go, uh-oh, because that's 3,000 people who need to be discipled, right? I'm just, when I read this this week, I couldn't help but the first time think, where are they baptizing all these people? And then as I studied, there's a lot of pools in Jerusalem, and so that was really amazing that God did that that way. But there's this moment of joy, but also I got to imagine at least some of the apostles are sitting down later being going, I don't know what we're going to do which is why Jesus sent the gift of the Holy Spirit to them, to empower them. Uh, one, one commentator said this about these 3,000 new believers. He said they meant that, that 3,000 new believers meant a lot of joy and a lot of trouble. And that's true. And, and there's a parallel between being a baby believer in Jesus and being a baby, right? Newborns are amazing. If you've been around babies, they're, they're adorable, they're cute. That they're just so fun to watch. Like my daughter is just over one now. She's starting to like figure stuff out. And it's really fun to watch her do that. Like she's figuring out how to be funny. Like she makes little jokes in the way that babies do that. But good grief, the never ending amount of work. And I'm saying this as the dad is a lot, right? And a lot of the young moms in here just are giving me a look. Uh, and in a similar way, right, th those newly born again believers were 3,000 kind of bundles of joy. And like a little kid, there are 3,000 accidents waiting to happen, spiritually speaking. And so the crowd, that this 3,000 people, really, they believed and they were baptized, which understand also for a Jew is a radical life-changing moment. This is a moment that would symbolize a break with the past and that God is doing something new in them, and so where there had now there had first been 120 in the upper room, and the spirit, the spirit comes like a rushing wind. They see these flames above their head. They start speaking in a way that people who speak other languages can just understand. And then there's this huge crowd, and Peter stands up and he says what he says in his sermon. And now the first practical challenge of the newly born church is where are we going to baptize 3,000 people, and how are we making disciples out of them? And that's a big challenge. And so we move from that scene to the next verse, and we start to see a framework, the basic marks of a church that have stood the test of time and are still what we look for when we ask the question, what is the church? Because if you've spent any time in this church or any other church, you know that I'm not, the next thing I'm going to say is the church isn't a building. Yes, that's true. It isn't a building, but what is it? So today, let's just work through some of the marks we see here that would help us answer that question. And I want to see you, I want to help you see and connect the dots to see how these are the marks that we have talked about and said are the same core values that we want to have. They're on the posters behind me. They're on the wall next to you. Uh, and so I want to invite you to just hang with me a little bit. We're going to go a little bit in a different order, but all the content of this text is going to be here, uh, I think. And so let's jump in. Verse 42. And they, who's they? The 3,120 people that we're thinking about here, they did what? They devoted themselves. Now, I want to point out here that this translation in this sentence could be a little better if it said, similar to how we would say the Great Commission is better if it's 
as you go. This sentence could be better if it said they were continually devoting themselves. This is so important to note because it really gives us the correct lenses to see how the Spirit is working in the church here in Acts and how he continues to work in the church today. And so uh, one of the things, if you get to know me, that I'm fascinated with is watching people who are masters at their craft and even thinking about language itself. Uh, you know, Don Maurice and I were talking before the service and I was saying, I, she said, can you speak fluent Spanish? I said, ah, I wouldn't say fluent. It's pretty broken. But if I practice and I'm with other people who speak Spanish, it gets better. I've been on a trip to Argentina, was there for a couple weeks. When I came back, I could speak pretty much fluent Spanish. And one of the things I love is watching people who are masters at a craft that you have to practice like that, right? The two examples I think of as I was preparing are sports and music. Uh, in both of those worlds, the great ones are continually devoted. They're devoted to working on their craft. So baseball season is here. Uh, in baseball, if you were to follow a great hitter, if you were to follow a great hitter for a week or two, you would see that they're always working on hitting. They're in the batting cage. They're asking their coach, what are the holes in my swing? Where am I missing the ball? Am I, is my shoulder flying open? Are my hips in the right way? That they're thinking about their mechanics. They're constantly working on something in the batting cages. Even major league players will do work on a tee. And that seems crazy, but that's what they do. They're devoted to this because like spiritual growth, it doesn't just come by chance and it will diminish over time. You, you, you won't lose the saving work of God in your life for the gift of the Holy Spirit, but you will lose your ability to act in that if you don't continually devote yourself. So the first thing I want to touch on is their continual devotion to worship. And as a part of that, I'm going to put in that category the teaching of the church. And I would point you to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, which talk about teaching and admonishing one another through the acts of worship. And so that's a connection that I think uh, is there. Now, I'm arguing that their worship here consisted of three things, the breaking of bread, the prayers, and then, of course, the apostles' teaching. Now, there's good reason, and this has been a, a I've made this argument to many boards, there's good reason uh, to believe, uh, as I do, I think that the breaking of bread here refers to the Lord's Supper. This is a particular thing it's talking about, that one of the things that has marked the church throughout history is the observance of communion or the Lord's Supper, as we would call it. And, and really, there's, there's two reasons, I think, main reasons to think that. First, this reference is coming between two really kind of religiously loaded terms in verse 42, fellowship and prayers. Those are church ideas, right? And then secondly, and we'll get to fellowship in a minute, and secondly, in verse 46, the phrases breaking bread and receive their food are intentionally different phrases. Those are separate ideas. And so after their regular meal, right, after their potluck, or their covered dish because we don't believe in luck, after their regular meal, they would take the leftover bread, the leftover wine, and they would do what we do at the end of our time together on Sundays, and they would partake of the communion meal, the Lord's Supper. They would continually devote themselves to doing this. Why? Because it puts the atoning work of Jesus in the forefront every week or every time you gather together. So if you've ever wondered why do we take communion every week here at our church, the first thing I would ask you is why not? And we could have that conversation. 
And then I would point you partly to this text. And also, I would also point you to the way that the vast majority of the church throughout history has viewed what this text means. And I would say it's just kind of assumed that the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread, is part of the normal, regular gathering when the church gathers together in the way that we do. Another way that they worshiped was through prayers. So this text is most likely, I think, suggesting specifically corporate prayers as they gather together. Probably a lot of Jewish prayers that they would have already known. These are Jews, remember? And they didn't just lose that. They became Christians, but they maintained those roots because Christianity comes out of Judaism. And so they, they would say these prayers as they gathered together. Again, if you've wondered why, pretty often we have the practice of corporate prayer where all of us are praying together in a room I would point you to a text like this. Well, here it is. This is the pattern we see from the beginning of the church. This has been and it will always be a continuing practice of the church. And then the last piece of this section of worship is also a continuing practice that we are devoted to. And that is the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves continually to the teaching of the apostles. And so again, what we see is that these 3,000 baby Christians are continually devoting themselves to worshiping God through his word as it comes to them through the apostles. Now, think about this, right? What are these apostles teaching? They're not picking from one of the epistles. That's not written yet. They're not breaking down Luke's gospel because that doesn't exist yet at this time. What are they teaching then? They're teaching the scriptures that they had, the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to Jesus. They're teaching what Jesus taught them. They're probably talking a lot about the Sermon on the Mount. They're talking a lot about the things Jesus taught them as they were walking and they're retelling experiences they had with Jesus as he was training them and empowering them. That's what they're teaching. The, the final conversations Jesus had with them in the upper room. All that stuff. And so these Christians, under sort of the, the power and the, and the reign of the Holy Spirit, are Hungry, it seems like, for God's word. They're devoting themselves continually. We want to hear more. i got to imagine that there were times when the apostles are like, I, I don't know what else to teach, Holy Spirit. you got to help me to know what to teach. And then they'd get asked the question, and then they would teach. And this seems to be the devotion that they had. And so this is what we saw again last week in those two texts from Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, Colossians 3, 16 and 17, which are both telling us that in order to grow and be filled with the power of the Spirit and with the life of Jesus, we have to be growing in and being filled with the Scriptures, the Word, right? Where we see the Spirit moving, we always see a love for God's Word. That's just a connection we have to understand. Those early believers, they studied the Scriptures, which is God's communication to them. I say the apostles' teachings, which is the New Testament writings for us, is, is the backbone of how we grow in our relationship to Jesus. Peter says in his first letter in chapter 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into your salvation. He's not saying that you study the scriptures in order to be saved. He's saying study the scriptures in order that you grow up into what God has made you to be. 
And so there's a dual responsibility here for making sure that this devotion is able to happen. Yes, a piece of that is on the pastor and the elders of a church to do good teaching, hopefully, and then to guard the doctrine of the church to say, no, that's not what we believe, or here is what we believe, but there's also your part in this. If you didn't grow up in the church and you don't know this reference, I'm sorry, but read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow Grow, grow. I'm not going to do the motions. Right? But each of us has to make sure that at some time, somewhere in our rhythm of life, in our week, we are being taught. And I think that's important. The act of sitting under teaching is an act that is part, a really important part of our church experience. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so when the Holy Spirit is moving in a church, God's people in that church are continually devoting themselves. It's a normal rhythm of their life that they're devoting themselves to these expressions of worship. But there's even more here. Verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And so this is the second thing we want to see here. We, we see this word fellowship and in our context, in our church, we would use the word community, and we mean the same thing. Now, we need to know that this is a particular kind of fellowship, right? That's a very, very churchy word. Very, in fact, we named parts of our building Fellowship Hall, right? But this is a very particular kind of community expression, kind of fellowship that did not exist before the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the Greek word that's used here, koinonia, is not in the Gospels anywhere. And so this is the first time that this word is used in the New Testament. And so the root idea, again, is commonness, commonality, same place we get the word community from. And so the New Testament Greek itself is called koine Greek because it's the common Greek of the day. It's the, it's the language that the average person spoke. It's the street language. Right? It's the trade language, maybe, is another way to say it. And so every time this fellowship word is used in the New Testament, it's denoting, and this is important, some kind of sharing. Either sharing something with someone. Right, We see this in 2 Corinthians 8, where it means literally a contribution to somebody. Or sharing in something that someone else is experiencing. Which is part of what's happening when we're singing together, when we're praying together, when we gather in the room. See, you being here on Sunday isn't just for you. It's also you being here for the other people to hear you sing, to hear you pray, to see you worshiping. And so here in Acts, the emphasis of the word in this instance is on this contributing or giving idea. And so the foundation of early Christian fellowship was radical generosity towards one another. Verses 44 and 45 Really make it clear. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That word there, koina. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, of course, like any other text, sometimes this gets taken too far in one direction. And it doesn't mean that they're living on a, com you know, a compound somewhere. Not that that would be wrong, but that's not what this means here. They sold as people had need. They didn't sell everything they had, as some like to say, because in verse 46, we see that they're breaking bread in somebody's house. So somebody has a house, right? So th there's a balance here. In, in Acts chapter 5, we're going to get there, Ananias and Sapphira, they own property. 
and they sell it, and they lie about it, but they sell it. And so the point is, the fellowship, the koinonia, the community of the early church is built on a foundation of generosity and sharing, and that doesn't just mean finances, although it does mean that. Think of the cost as community as consisting of time, talent, and treasure. So this radical community cost something in the early church. This is not just a sentimental feeling of, oh, we're one body and we love each other. That's definitely going to be there. But true fellowship, true community, koinonia, cost you something. Many of us never know the fullness of joy of Christian fellowship because it's never, uh, it's never clicked that our lives are now something that we, are, we get to give away. Your energy, your time, your life itself is something that you now get to give away for the glory of God and the good of others. And if you think about church as primarily a place where you get something, you're not going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit and the growth that you say you want. And so the early Christians are called the way because this Christianity thing is a way of life and a massive part of that way of life is radical community that manifests itself in the giving away of your time and your talent and your treasure in the community of faith. But, but now remember, you're also a recipient of this. You're not just giving and you're not just taking, but we're living in community together and both are happening. And so as a part of that community, as a part of that koinonia, you're also from time to time on the receiving end of that radical generosity and community and some of us struggle with that side of it we don't like to think that i'm going to need help and be on that end of it but this is what it means to live in community so when we think about this churchy word we throw around all the time that you know we used to say fellowship a lot now it's cool to say community we need to remember the link it has to generosity do you want to have true fellowship giving a part of our practice as a Christian. We support missionaries. We support church planters. We give to our local expression of faith in our local church. But it also means that we're willing to take the step of committing ourselves to being involved in the life of the church that we're a part of. But we're going to get to this in Acts chapter 6. But practically meeting the needs that are part of the life of a church is part of our spiritual practice as the church. So here and now in this church... That might mean it's just a commitment to regular weekly attendance. That's a first step in experiencing this fellowship. For some of us, that would be a step towards being devoted to fellowship, to just say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit, continually devote myself to just be there on a weekly basis. We're driven by grace, so it's not about guilt, but that's what I want to do to experience more koinonia. For some of us, it might mean taking the step to committing our time to serving in one of those five areas we've talked about before that we have needs in. So if that's if at the end of this you're like, oh man, that's me, then I want to talk to you about that. I want to plug you in. I'll get you connected. My promise to you is that if that's you and you do one of those things, then you're going to experience a deeper sense of community, the deeper sense of community you actually desire, because in order to make those commitments, you're going to need more Holy Spirit power. You want to serve in children's ministry, you're going to need some Holy Spirit power back there. And if you have that, it will only ever bring goodness and joy in the end to you through the difficulties of that commitment, that community. 
And there's a bunch of other ways. We could talk about Christian hospitality. We could talk about pastoral care for one another. All of those are expressions of that community. And then the final sort of broad characteristic of the early church, the first church, is that they were on mission together. That this is just a normal rhythm of their life. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And it's important to note who's adding. The Lord is doing this. It's his harvest. And so when the Holy Spirit is moving, God's people, i.e. the church, relate to the world in the way that we should. See, when the Holy Spirit is moving, there is a radical reorientation of our lives because we are being filled with the Holy Spirit's power and we are seeing people that we didn't see before as needing the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus to transform them. This is what God did for the 3,000 people here in Acts, and this is what God wants to still do through us. might be 3,000, it might be two. This is such a, 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 a beautiful package deal, if you will. Look at the way the Holy Spirit empowered devotion to, to worship and community sort of just spills out in mission in the church here. Verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Now, that word awe doesn't mean like terror. It means like what we see in, in Isaiah 6, when he sees the Lord and he is struck by God's holiness. Awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This Again, this isn't terror. This is worship. And again, verse 46 gives a beautiful picture of the worship in the early church. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So, so I think part of what we see here is both a formal in the temple and then kind of an informal in their homes expression of fellowship, of the church. Jesus called the temple his father's house, right? So it makes sense that they would go there to worship. And as we see later on, a lot of their time is spent on what was called Solomon's porch, which we'll get to in chapters 3 and 5. But since their communal meal couldn't have been eaten on the temple precincts, they're breaking bread from house to house. So there's this informal life together, right? In that sort of world of when pastors talk about this, inevitably somebody's going to say, we do life together. We love that phrase. And so these believers also had, what do we see there in verse 46? Glad and generous hearts. I want that. I want that to be my disposition, right? I just have a glad and generous heart. That's just like the norm for me. And, and, and that word glad there means exulting gladness. The, the New English Bible translation has it as unaffected joy. So, so we can imagine that when someone passed by one of these home fellowships, not only did they hear probably testimonies and maybe some hymns being sung or some Old Testament scriptures being read, they probably, hopefully, I believe, would have also heard laughter from time to time. They would have heard people expressing joy. This is why we make space for this to be happening before our formal gathering, even on Sundays. You may not know this, but there's an awesome team of folks. Some of them are in the booth. Some of them are back there. Some of them have already done what they do to serve. And they come here on Sundays early, and they prep the things that need to be prepped in order for this, what we're doing right now, to take place. Right? The kids' snacks don't just appear magically. The coffee doesn't just make itself. The slides on our screens don't just appear by magic. Somebody does that. The bathrooms, the windows, they don't clean themselves. 
So all of that is happening on Sundays early before this formal part of our koinonia starts. But one of the things that we do as a team is we make sure that we're done with that stuff by 1020 so that we can pray together. And then we have this place ready to be an environment where this kind of joy and gladness can be happening. If you come here before service and laughed with somebody, I do pretty much every week. It's a place of gladness and joy. So, so don't think that the time before and after our service, when we're hanging out, we're laughing together, enjoying one another, isn't part of what it means to be the church. It is. That's part of God's intention for us. And so the church, under the power of the Holy Spirit, is devoted to teaching and worship and community, and then mission flows out of that as a result. Why in the world wouldn't I want everyone that I know to experience this thing that I'm called that, that I'm part of called the church. Of course I would want that. When I get a good hamburger, I tell people about it. Why wouldn't I want this to be the same way? But now as beautiful as that picture is, if this was a Hollywood movie, this is where the scene would close. And 3,000 souls were added that day and the end. But we have the rest of the New Testament we have the, the rest of the books of the New Testament, which is kind of evidence of the need for the devotion that we see in this part of Acts. Right? The rest of the New Testament is like kind of, here's what happens when you get off from the devotion of these things. We have to start having issues, right? Because I, I don't know if you remember this, but this is a room full of sinners. And we do sinful stuff and we hurt each other, but the Bible has put us together as a koinonia in order to grow us and make us dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what the rest of kind of God's word to us is. So church, if we want to see this Holy Spirit power, which we do and I do, and, and I was told a, a couple weeks ago, I was having a conversation with someone about some feedback on the sermon. And he said, well, you didn't say that the gifts are no go, but you kind of made it feel like don't do it here. And I said, man, that wasn't my intention. I would love to see the gifts practiced here. But I need to learn about it more, and I, and I want to teach about it more, and I'm a little nervous about it, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. And so if we want to see Holy Spirit power, the pattern is clear. We continually devote ourselves. We come back over and over, and it's a practice to these things for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for um, the record of these words that what we see in the scriptures is um, what you have decided we need to see in order to grow and to be filled with your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you fill us? Would you do what only you can do? Would you uh, give us the words we need to have when we're having that conversation with that person that maybe you're bringing to our minds right now? Would you help us to see the people that we've kind of started to, to not see anymore as we drive to work or as we walk through the office or as we uh, go pick up our kids at school, whatever it is. There's people all around that you have put us in connection with. Would you help us to see them? And Holy Spirit, would you empower us to just share what our experience with, with you has been so that they would be drawn to yourself? And would you help us to love the world that's around us and show the kingdom of God to them? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.